0: 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Here's what the Word of God says. Uh, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and when the hev- and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which, in which righteousness dwells. Second Peter chapter 3, just to let you know where we're headed, we're finished with Second Peter today, and next week, just as an aside, we're going to do... Uh, Look at the entire book of jude we're going to go through the whole thing and some of you going wow That sounds like a lot of work. It's a really short book Uh, It only has one chapter not even a very long chapter at that and the reason we're going to do that is jude and second Peter are so similar It seemed like it only made sense you may as well if we're looking at second peter here over the last couple of weeks Let's look at jude as a way of of reminder and then what's next after that just so you know And you can begin reading if you're the kind of person who likes to get ahead We're going to spend the next couple of months, probably until the middle of February, in the book of Philippians. So if you want to start reading the book of Philippians, we're going to be spending our time thinking about gratitude and joy. So four months of gratitude and joy or three months of gratitude and joy, that's not uh, too bad. We'll mix in some good uh, sternly worded warnings just for good measure. (laughs) The nearness of God, or we might say it this way, God is near. So in Second Peter, the recipients of the letter are hearing from false teachers and essentially, boiling it down to a nutshell, the argument of the false teachers is God is absent, God's not returning, God's on vacation, you can do whatever you want. And now we're coming to sort of this uh, challenging uh, chapter from 2 Peter where he encourages the believers to say, to challenge this notion that God is not near and understand if God is near, what does it mean for how I live on a day-to-day basis? If God is near, what does it mean for how I live on a day-to-day basis? The false teachers were basically making this argument. God is not near, so therefore, he's far away. If he comes back, it's going to be a really long time. And so therefore, there's at least three things, probably several more that they would have said, but here are the three things we're going to argue against this morning. Number one is God must be negligent. Since God is not near, God is negligent. There's a problem. Since God is far away, he has neglected his proper duties. Uh, The second thing that they would argue is God is not near, so therefore God is slow. God may be coming back, uh, but you might want to accelerate the time frame on that. So God is slow. And the final thing we're going to talk about this morning is God is not near, so therefore he must be passive. He must not be active in the uh, the realities of people's life. He's passive and distant. Since God is near, we're going to make this argument. And this is the outline today, if you like outlines. God is near, so therefore he is not negligent. He is not slow. And he is not passive. And uh, we're going to let the Bible convince us of this uh, this morning. So think of this. God is near, so he is not negligent. We expect people to act when they have responsibility. So... there's a dangerous situation say there's a group of people and there's a bad person who's seeking to harm these people and there are some innocent bystanders off to the side if a couple of innocent bystanders decide we're going to intervene in this situation we say hey great heroes right but if they choose not to and they decide to run from their lives or for their lives we would say that's what innocent bystanders do they run away that's the appropriate reaction when you're in a dangerous situation is to run away however If a police officer is nearby, what do we expect a police officer to do? To intervene. Well, what if the police officer run away? What do we say? He's negligent in his duties. His job is, when something bad is happening, to run towards it, and we know that's hard, we know that's scary, and that's a big deal, Uh, but when you don't, we say, why did you become a police officer? In fact, this has happened, it's been in the news several times, bad things happen. Police officers don't operate, and sometimes they lose their jobs, sometimes they get prosecuted. Somebody says, you have a job, and if you don't do it, you're negligent for not doing it. So then the argument comes, Your are God, I've got this problem, bro, you're negligent. Since he is not doing what I expect him to do, therefore he must be derelict in his duty. And the argument from 2 Peter 3 is, God is near... He is not negligent. Let's read uh, verses 1 through 7. We didn't read these earlier. We're going to uh, end up reading the whole chapter this morning. So here's what verses 1 through 7. This is Second Peter chapter 3. This is what it says. Uh, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. Now that seems obvious. I just stopped it. It's called Second Peter. Duh. <laughs> well, when these were originally sent, they didn't have the, the names on them. So let's go easy on them. Uh, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by a way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days, excuse me, with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say... Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing on as they were from the beginning of creation. Verse 5. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water and by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens of the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So this is the argument he is going to make. It's very, very simple. The question is not whether it's easy to understand. The question is whether or not you are convinced by it. God's timetable is not one of neglect, But God's timetable is one of intentional purpose and intentional plan. So God's timetable, he has a plan of what he is going to do and when he is going to do it. And his timetable is not one of neglect. His timetable is one of intentioned, active purpose and plan. Each thing that must occur will occur when it is intended to occur no earlier and no later. But scoffers arise, and they are predicted to arise. They will always arise. So scoffers come and say, since God's not acting today, God will therefore never act. That is essentially the argument. Now, it's a silly argument, but it's a very convincing one. At night, if you woke up in the middle of the night and you said, since the sun is not up now, the sun therefore will never be up. I mean, is anybody convinced by that? No, because you're used to the sun coming up, going down, coming up, going down. But this is essentially their argument. They're saying, since God hasn't returned in the last 40 to 60 years, therefore it becomes patently obvious to any casual observer that God will never return. And these scoffers are the most predictable thing in the Scripture, you might imagine. The scoffers will come, the scoffers will and they do come, and here they go. So let's look at a couple of verses where they're predicted Uh, I'm going to go fast, uh, so you uh, may or may not be able to turn to it before I read it. Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 and 4, this is Jesus, and it says this, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately, saying, "Uh, Tell us when all these things will be. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? If Jesus was here, would you ask him that question? Of course you would a fair question. He's not offended by the question. Jesus answered them. See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Jesus predicts the scoffers. Down in verse 11 of Matthew 24, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Isn't it interesting The disciples come to Jesus and say, when will the day of your return be? And his response is, beware of false prophets. do you see that he doesn't say Tuesday he says watch out for false prophets the reason is because he knows in the waiting the soil of our hearts is fertile for deception it will not come when you expect so in the interim your heart will be ripe for the picking for the false teacher to say he is never coming and so his warning is when is he coming careful That question, although a fair question, an appropriate question, reveals in us a heart that is susceptible to false prophets who will arise. Now, look quickly over at Acts chapter 20, verse 29. The Apostle Paul was meeting with the leaders and elders and others of the church of Ephesus, the Ephesian believers. He was not meeting in Ephesus. He was taking a boat ride and met them sort of in between. And he knew this was his last conversation with these people from the church of Ephesus. He knew he would likely be in prison or martyred, and he would never see them again, and his prediction was true. And so these are his parting words, the words of a dying man in many ways. And this is what he says in Acts 20, 29 to 31. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And even from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. The scoffers are predicted. The scoffers always come. The scoffers all will be around. And the Bible categorizes scoffers, that is, those who would say God hasn't returned, therefore he isn't going to return. These scoffers fit under one category, fools. They are fools. And we're not mocking. It's an accurate description of someone who doesn't properly account for reality. To say that God is not coming because he has never come is a silly thing to say. It's a foolish thing to say. And the Bible broadly categorizes any who would deny the someday arrival of the Lord as fools. How does he make this argument that God is going to return? Here is the argument. Verse 5. Three pieces of information that he gives us to tell us God is coming. Now, like I say, basic argument. It is easy. The question is whether or not you are convinced by it. If you are not convinced by it, you will not be the first. But it means you uh, you need to understand what that means. Here's what it says. Verse 5. They deliberately overlook this Fact. Here you go. Ready for the fact? Earth was formed. Very simple argument. Are you on a planet? Yes. Therefore, that planet must have been made, so therefore there is God. Okay? So, very simple. Is anyone in any place who finds organized matter assumes someone organized it. That's, that's an assumption. You walk into any room. Now, as a parent, it's disorganized matter. You walk into any room, and there's disorganization. Somebody was here. Who messed up my stuff, right? Now, this is, so this is normal. Anytime you discover organized matter, not chaos, but something put together in a, in a way, the assumption is somebody did that. And, and Peter's making that argument. There is God. Now, the question is, do we have a personal God? Peter takes that argument a little further than you have May be heard. He says, If God made, therefore we have to assume this about his nature. He is a God who intervenes. A God who does not intervene would never create. And that's what he's saying. They have deliberately overlooked this fact the heavens existed and then it was formed by the word of God. So the existence of creation, Peter makes this simple observation there is God. And he shows up. He is not an absentee God. He is not somewhere in the distant recesses God. He does not make things and then go on vacation. He is God who creates. And he is God who intervenes in creation. This is the conclusion that Peter is drawing from the existence of creation. He goes one step further. Verse 6. It was by means of these, that is the word of God, that the world was deluged with water. When, did, when was that? Noah in the ark. So at a certain point in history, Genesis chapter 6, mankind had completely rebelled against God and God saw fit to judge humankind and he flooded the world as an act of judgment. So the next argument Peter makes is this. You say God doesn't show up. I would argue the people who had to tread water say God showed up. So to say God is absent neglects the historical account. Now remember, we had covered this several weeks ago. During the time when Second Peter was written in that area of Asia Minor, Noah was a hero. Noah was even on some of the coinage of the Roman Empire. And so Noah was huge. It was, this is one of the reasons he's using this as an example. He's saying to the people of a region that held Noah in high honor, you say God doesn't intervene? The guy on your money says he does because the world experienced his intervention. Now remember, and this is a great example, the day before the rain came, everybody was getting married and eating and drinking and watching Netflix, doing all the normal things people do, and nobody thought, well, God will never intervene. You can build all the boats you want, Noah. The assumption is, since he hasn't intervened today, God will never intervene, and the argument from 2 Peter is, He intervened, he made the world. Secondly, the flood came, he intervened. To assume God is absent or casually disinterested in the affairs of men does not properly account for the facts, the historically observable information. Okay, so what's the last piece of information? What were the first two he said? There's a planet, so therefore, God who intervenes. There was a flood, therefore, God who intervenes. The last observations, verse seven, By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. This one's a little more awkward. I don't mean to make you uncomfortable, but there's no other way to do this, all right? You go to somebody's house. Pull into the house. You've never been to their house before, and off to the side of their house is a gigantic stack of firewood. Big stack of fire. What assumption do you make about their house? Probably got a fireplace. Or they sell firewood, I guess, could be an option. That would be... uh, one option, but you're going to make it. They have a fireplace, or they have a wood stove, or they're breeding black widows. I, <laughs> it's really these three options, and one of them is uh, the unpardonable sin. Okay, so you said, well, here's the stack of firewood. It is destined for the. This is incompetent. It's not your question. Fire. This is the argument Peter makes about creation. He says, look, is there creation? Yes, then there's a God who intervenes. Was there a flood? Yes, then there's a God who intervenes. Is there a creation that is now clearly destined for judgment? He says, the same word the heavens and earth exist are being stored up for fire. He looks at the universe and sees a pile of firewood. He said, it is evident judgment and justice is needed, so therefore I presume there is a fireplace and there is a god who runs it. And so this is his threefold argument. Look at the facts. Creation, flood, and clearly a need for justice and judgment. Therefore, there is a god and there is a god who intervenes. And the scoffers want to try and convince us, flying in the face of the available facts, god is absent. There is no god, and if there is one, he is negligent in or derelict in his duty why is this a problem why are the scoffers so dangerous if God is absent who is in charge me you if there is no God authority is determined by whoever has the most power whoever has the most money or the most influence and when it finally comes down to it for me the rule and reign of my life is me if there is no God, or if there is a God who chooses not to intervene, what's great about that is I then become God. And this is what the danger of the scoffers is. They say, what you want is what matters. You rule, you reign, do as you please. I'm making a religious argument about God. God is absent. God will not intervene. So therefore, do what you want. And Peter's argument is this. Look at creation you might want to be careful with the God-doesn't-show-up argument and determining that you will make a decision about what your life ought to look like. This is what we must understand about God's justice. That is, when He is going to come and finally make right all wrongs and correct all evils and bring those who are His into His own, it is perfect, it is on time, it is precise, it is complete, it is satisfactory. So you can see any anybody who maybe suffers a significant loss, a spouse or children are taken by some heinous crime. They capture the criminal. He then goes to trial and then the trial if he's convicted and he is sentenced to life in prison without parole or the death penalty which is life in prison without parole. What does the person do when they interview him? This won't bring my kid back. So that's you can do justice all day long it doesn't fix anything is the argument it is right and it ought to be done and the person should face the penalty for their crimes however it doesn't right the wrong God's justice and intervention is not like that when God redeems and he brings everything to bear all rights will be made wrong all wrongs will be made right and when it's done it will be satisfactory So every harm that has been done to you by some evildoer and you're powerless to correct it, at the end of things, you will say, okay, thank you for handling that. All wrongs will be made right. All injustices will be reversed. God's justice is perfect. It is on time. It is precise. It is complete. And it is, in fact, satisfactory. However, the fact that God has not come today does not mean he will never come. This is the argument of the scoffer. Not now means never. Does that make any sense? Well, but we're convinced by it all the time. He's not here today. He must never be coming. And this is the argument of the scoffers. Not now does not mean never. God is near. He is not negligent. He is on duty. He knows all the wrongs we do to others. He also knows all the wrongs that are done against us. God is near. He is not negligent. Let's move along, verses 8 through 10. God is near, but He is not slow. So, sure, He has a plan, but can He pull it off? And if God has the power to pull off His plan, uh, why tomorrow and not today? Why next week and not now? Why 10 years from now and not today? If God has the power Uh, Has a plan. Can he pull it off? And if he can pull off the plan, why in the world would you wait? Verse 8, we've already read it. Do not overlook this fact, beloved. With the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Now, there are some people who are very good athletes. They run in the hundred meter uh, uh, race in the Olympics. They're very fast, they can run that a race, most of them, if you're competing in the Olympics, in the men's event, you're able to run 100 meters in uh, a little bit less than nine seconds, right? Now you and I could run that race and we could do it maybe a little bit less than nine minutes. Yeah, especially if there's a hot dog stand between the start and finish line, (laughs) right? And so we would say to anybody competing in the 100 meter dash, they are fast, right? They are fast. Our assessment of those individuals they can run fast, and that's an appropriate and accurate assessment. However, look at it another way. You've got seven or eight people competing in the finals, maybe the Olympics of the 100-meter race. All of them have a plan to win. Really, frankly, any set of circumstances, any one of those individuals could likely win that race. At the end of the day, all but one are too slow. All of them, except for one, were just simply too slow. Nothing you can say about it. Why did they lose the race? They ran slower than the person who finished first. That's how races work. I don't know if you know how this works. Nowadays, you know, everybody gets a trophy, but not there. Not in the Olympics. So the the question about are they fast, you realize in just a silly little illustration, speed is relative to a fixed point of perspective. And the question of length of time is not determined by your or my Uh, understanding of how long time is a length of time is determined by how long God thinks time ought to be and the author of scripture says here plainly for the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is is as one day the point of view of time is for God that uh, in our view not yet is late that's our perspective on anything we're waiting for when should something we want happen now and any time other than now is late. God's perspective on time is a little bit different than ours. Not yet is not late. In fact, for God, if now is not the time, now is early, and early doesn't work for God. On time is what works for God. So, God's point of view on time is different. All things will happen according to His purpose on time not late, and certainly not early, and certainly not according to your or my perspective on time. God is near. He is not slow. A couple of Old Testament scriptures to touch base on this. This uh, quote for uh, Peter comes comes from Psalm 90. I'm going to read Psalm 90 verses 1 through 4. This happens to be a psalm written uh, by Moses through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He's saying, before there was creation, God was and is God. Verse 3 of Psalm 90, You return, man, to dust, and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch, in the night. A thousand years for God it's a couple hours. A watch in the night. It was like, oh, that. what did I do yesterday? I mean, the last millennia. For God, time, because he has always existed, operates in a different uh, realm than it does for us. Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah has been preaching God's revelation to the people of Judah and Israel. They were under judgment and were being Uh, invaded and conquered by Babylon and he had been telling them what to expect and this is what the people said to Jeremiah Jeremiah 17 verse 15 They, they were saying this to Jeremiah where is the word of the Lord let it come so Jeremiah was proclaiming the vision of God to the people of Israel and their response to them was well hurry up let's go let's do this So we're not the first ones to say when is God going to show up we're not the first ones to have scoffers to come and say well since God didn't show up now he's late or never coming in fact Jeremiah wasn't the first prophet to face or the only prophet to face this Ezekiel Ezekiel chapter 12 what I say Ezekiel chapter 12 okay Ezekiel chapter 12 verse 21 the word of the Lord came to me Son of man, what is the proverb that you have about the land of Israel? This is great. God comes to Ezekiel and say, hey, I can't remember. What's that What's that proverb you everybody says to each other? You have a bumper sticker on your car. I can't remember it. Oh, I don't even know what it is. The days grow long and every vision comes to nothing. So the people of Israel at the time of Ezekiel actually had a proverb. Hey, what's up, bro? Days are long. Visions of God come to nothing. It was like a What's up? I mean, it it, it was a proverb that they had. They said, well, God predicts lots of things, but he never shows up. It It was a proverb they had. And here's what God says to Ezekiel in verse 23. Tell them, therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will put an end to this proverb, and you shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel, but you will say to them, the days are near in the fulfillment of every vision so they had scoffers in Ezekiel's day well God never shows up and God says there will be a day where that, pro- that proverb won't make any sense because you'll say no 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 don't say that because it did God showed up and it was kind of scary Malachi chapter 2 Malachi chapter 2 verse 17 you have wearied the Lord with your words but you say to him how have we wearied him By saying this, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Okay, that's of course, that would weary the Lord. Or this, by asking, where is God's justice? They were wearying the Lord with their doubt. It wasn't so much that they doubted the Lord or had weakness of faith and had questions on how God was working, because we see that throughout the Psalms. Where are you, God? Are you going to help me, God? I'm dying. Have you noticed, God? This was more of a sarcastic scoffer saying, where's the God of justice? He's never going to show up. Each man, take care of your own business. Everyone, handle yourself. This doubt, really a false covering of arrogant self-assurance, is as old as time. This is an old error recycled over and over and over again. Since God hasn't shown up in the last 10 minutes, there's no God. This is nothing new. You're watching the Discovery Channel or the History Channel or talking to a skeptic, and they say, God hasn't shown up. We've never seen it. This is a recycled, used over and over and over again, error of scoffers. He is not slow. He will come precisely when he intends to. God's purpose, let's look at what his purpose is in taking so long. Verse 9 of 2 Peter chapter 3. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you. So instead of seeing him as slow, Peter is saying we should see him as patient. He is waiting till the exactly appropriate time to return, and in the meantime, he wants to bestow his grace on as many as possible. The, good, the longer he waits, the more who will hear of the good news. The longer he waits, the more who will find hope in Christ instead of in this place. He is not wishing that any would perish. He would prefer that all would reach repentance. Now, not all will, but his heart is, let's wait till all have heard. Let's wait until all have had an opportunity to hear. The day of the Lord, verse 10, will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away. Let's look over at Matthew 24, verse 42. Matthew 24, verse 42, this is what Jesus had to say about coming like a thief. Therefore, stay awake. You do not know what day your Lord is coming. Let's agree that Jesus is right. You do not know on the day the Lord is coming. Do we all agree? Some of, somebody knows? Okay, no, everybody, we agree. No, we don't have a clue. What day do we know he's not coming? Yesterday. So we've got that nailed down. Today, still early? We don't know. We don't know what day he's coming. Now, again, the scoffers will argue since he hasn't come yesterday and since he didn't come today, therefore, by my brilliant deduction, he therefore is never coming. This is not what Jesus says. Therefore, stay awake. You do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and he would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Here's the saying. Here's the point of the parable. Therefore, you must be ready. That's the whole idea of waiting. The idea of waiting is not waiting. The idea of waiting is readiness. If we knew a thief was coming, we would make ready. Our ability to keep the thief from invading if we know the Lord is returning we must make ready for him we must be ready not merely waiting not passing time but being in a state of readiness the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect we need to prepare for the arrival of Christ we need to be ready for the arrival of Jesus two things on that uh, point number one The first priority of being ready for Jesus is to have your sins forgiven. To have Christ returned and your sins unforgiven, you will face judgment and destruction. That means you will still be on the firewood pile instead of off of the firewood pile. The primary purpose of proclaiming the good news of the gospel is Jesus saves sinners when we repent and confess our sin. All is forgiven and we escape the day of judgment. So that's the first purpose of readiness. Our souls must be made clean from our sin. That's done by the work of Christ, and we appropriate that or apply that by trusting Him. Secondly, as believers, we make ourselves ready by living our life in accordance with the purposes of Christ's will. We're going to see that more in the second uh, or the third part of this. But that means living our lives as God would have us live them. Sharing the gospel, saying no to sin, saying yes to worship, knowing God through his word and prayer. We must prepare and be ready for Christ. The likelihood of being caught unaware upon Christ's return is very high. I might suggest this, and you might, uh, you might disagree with me on this. That's totally okay. I would suggest that almost everybody when Christ returns will be completely caught off guard. And you say, well, not me. Okay, that's fine. You'll be the one guy. That's great. But the Bible is quite clear. He's coming at an hour you do not expect. That means most people when Christ returns, believer, unbeliever, whatever, most people say, like, really? Man, I would have never picked today. Well, okay. I mean, your call. I mean, most people will be caught completely unaware. The likelihood of being caught unaware is extraordinarily high. And so what the Bible says, with that in mind, instead of guessing the day, be diligent. Instead of saying, I know when he's going to come on Wednesday, so I'll be ready on Wednesday. The Bible says, instead, be ready every day. And have a state of diligence and readiness to expect his return at any time. Okay, turn back. To Second uh, Peter chapter three, and unless you're already there, then then just stay there. Verse ten: The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works and done on it will be exposed. So what this means is all of the deeds of mankind will finally be atoned, will be made up for. So justice will be done. Judgment will come for all the wrong that has been done on and in and through creation. To escape judgment, you must be in Christ. It's the only escape. To be out of Christ means to, be, to remain on the earth when it's burned and dissolved. Not good news. The nearness of God He is not slow. Okay, last section. Since the future is unknown, we need to understand that God is not improvising. He has a plan. The nearness of God, God is not passive. We're looking at verses 11 through 18. Verse 11 again. We're going to read uh, verse 11 again. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, that is creation, what sort of people ought you to be? So there's the question. So like I said, this is what we're getting at. The nearness of God. You've got two questions. Is God near or is he absentee or is he non-existent? If God is absentee or non-existent, you know, then you've got no problems. Now, I might suggest you want to make really sure that's true. But if God is near, that is, he is God who creates and God, or God who intervenes, the application question is very straightforward in verse 11. Since he is near, since he is intervened, and since he will return, What sort of people ought you to be? That's his question. It's a very straightforward question. Since he's returning at a point in history, how then should we live? we see this. There's a television show that says, uh, what should you do? Have you seen this, a television show? So there's hidden cameras, and they put together this dramatic situation in a restaurant or something, and they film what people are doing or or how they might respond to some terrible thing that's happening in a restaurant, and then uh, the cameras come out. And it's funny to discover how different people would behave when they don't think anyone is watching versus when the cameras come out. So the cameras come out, people suddenly change a little bit. Okay, i got to keep things in line here a little bit. And, and now that the cameras, so when people are watching, I want to act one day. When nobody's watching, I kind of do my own thing. And what are you saying here? What sort of people ought we to be since we know the cameras are there? Not the cameras for the world, but God Sees. God knows he will return. It will be on time. It will be unexpected. How then should we live? Well, thankfully it tells us. Let's read it. Verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved Paul Also, wrote to you according to the wisdom given me, given him, excuse me, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of these matters. There are some things in his letters that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist their own destruction, as they do with other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. He will return on time. It will be unexpected. How then should we live? We should live as those who are wise, not as those who are foolish. We should be prepared, not ill-prepared. One last place to go in Jesus' um, teaching, Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. This is the parable of the lamps. It doesn't mean that at the end of the service we're going to sing, give me oil in my lamps, keep them burning. Do you know that song? It's a fun song, I guess, but we're not going to sing. Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins, or young women. They took their lamps, and they went to meet the bridegroom, old school weddings, uh, the bridegroom, that is the groom, he'd sort of show up when he felt like it. That, it was a weird deal. I don't understand it, but it's how they did it. Uh, he'd go, and he'd get things ready, and he'd show up for the wedding and the reception sort of like whenever. could be in the afternoon. It could be like the middle of the night, and so people would come, and they'd gather, and they'd kind of hang out, and they'd uh, eat together, and they'd chill, and they'd just wait for him to show up kind of whenever he rolled. Oh, they're here. Good. Okay, him and his posse would come in. They have a big party, um, so they came, so this wedding has happened, it's very normal, it's very customary, and you got these uh, ten young women, and they're anticipating, participating in the party, verse 2 of Matthew 25, five of them were foolish, five were wise, okay, fools, fools and wise, wise, foolish ones and wise ones, what's the difference, the foolish ones took their lamps, but they took no oil with them, that is extra oil, they had a little oil in the lamp, because they were burning, they didn't take a jug extra, the wise took flasks of oil, that's a fancy word for jugs, uh, took flasks of oil with their lamps. The bridegroom was delayed and they all became drowsy and slept. Of the 10 young women, how many slept? 10. The sleeping is not the issue. At midnight, there was a cry. Dude's here. Yay, party. Come out to meet him. All the virgins rose up and they trimmed their lamps because they got to get them and they got to get them lit and the foolish one said to the wise one we're out of oil what are we going to do and the wise one said go to walmart get your oil (laughs) they refilled and they went in with the bridegroom while the other ones were going to the store the doors to the reception closed they were not ready for the bridegroom and then when the celebration of the arrival of the bridegroom occurred They found themselves on the outside because they were not ready. Watch, therefore, verse 13. You know neither the day or the hour. Pay attention. In the interim time, there appears to be no difference between the fools and the wise. The day when the wise will be known as wise is the day of the return of the Lord. All the days leading up to that day, the foolish and the wise will seem the same. Except that the wise will have wasted their extra oil when they could have spent it on other things. But instead, in their readiness, they retained it, and so they maybe in some ways even seem foolish. Until that day, the wise will not seem wise. Wisdom will be revealed on the day when those who have been ready up till that day will have been reviled, and now at that point... The day of the Lord will reveal them as wise. Okay, let's go back to 2 Peter chapter 3 and just sum up what he calls us to do. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Therefore, be diligent. I'm gonna highlight three things he calls us to do. Be diligent. Waiting for the Lord is not a passive thing. It's a diligence to faithfulness into the things of God. Readiness for the return of the Lord is diligence. Secondly, found without spot or blemish. That is living lives of holiness, pursuing the things of God, not the things of our own passions. This was the opposite with the false teachers. The false teachers said, God's never returning. Do whatever you feel like. Whatever you want to do, whatever your inclination is, you do it. Whereas Uh, the gospel calls to say Christ is coming and he is our hope so I will say no to my passions that I know are sinful finally last one be at peace be diligent live in holiness that is say no to the sin you want and finally live at peace he is saying as a body of believers live at peace with one another in light of that day Just very quickly, James chapter 4, verse 1 highlights uh, why peace is hard in the body of believers. And you're saying, well, we know why it's hard. Have you met these people? But there's a specific reason why it's hard to live at peace in the body of believers. Uh, James 4, 1 and 2 says this. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Some of you are going, that guy. That's not what he's saying. Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. You desire, but you don't have. You covet, and you cannot get it, and so you fight, and you quarrel. You fight with people because they're in the way of you getting what you want, and it's irritating. That's what causes fights and quarrels among you, and so holiness and peace in the body of the believers are connected. The only way to have peace in the body of believers is for each one of us to finally decide, I don't need it my way. It's okay if I don't get it my way. The world will, in fact, continue to turn on its access if I don't get my way. And it's okay if other people get what they want and I don't get what I want. That is the means by which peace occurs in the body of believers. Diligence, holiness, peace in the body of believers. Okay, last thing, and then we're going to sum up with a couple of application questions. Take care. Take care. To grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ He wants us with intention This is verse 17 You therefore beloved Knowing this beforehand Knowing he is going to come Take care Be diligent Pay attention to your life And instead of focusing on my own things Since the Lord is returning Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ For his glory Is he coming? The question is, how would I live today if he was coming this afternoon or coming tomorrow morning? I would be diligent. I would say no to sin. I would live at peace with others, and I would take care. Okay, a couple of questions, and then uh, we're going to end with uh, a last song. In the Bible, waiting for the Lord is not waiting. Waiting. Well, that doesn't seem right. Waiting is not waiting. Uh, What we're waiting for is to sort of hit the escape hatch. How do we hit the escape hatch? That's sort of how some of us sometimes get waiting. The Bible says he is coming, and so we're to wait faithfully. And so someday we're going to hit the escape hatch. But waiting in the Lord is not how do I get out. Waiting in the Lord is saying how do I look differently at my existence here? How do I look at my suffering? How do I look at my victories? How do I look at my priorities given that the Lord is going to return. And I think that it's fair to say all of us could do, with a little bit of self-assessment, if I really live knowing the Lord is going to return soon, would my priorities look the way they do? Second thing, when Jesus returns, there will be no mistaking him. So here's a quick, uh, you know, uh, Cliff's Notes way to know if somebody is Jesus. If they have to tell you he's Jesus, he's not. When he comes, you won't need to ask. Okay, so if somebody has to explain to you that he's the Savior, you say, well, you're not then because you're not nearly awesome enough. When he returns, people will want to hide under crumbling mountains to get out of his sight. He is coming in glory. There will be no mistaking him. If someone comes and says, I am he, immediately you know, they're not. If there's any question, I wonder if he could be. He's not. Okay, uh, two more things, then we're we're done. When it comes to living our life, according to that day, it's better sometimes to, instead of think about just what's right or wrong, to think about what's best and not best. Okay, sometimes as Christians, we get really caught up in, is this the right thing to do, or is this the naughty thing to do? I want to do more right than naughty. That's kind of how Sometimes we put categories. And with the day of the Lord in mind, really, it's not so, that's not the main question. The question is, what's best? Obviously, not sinning would be a good idea. But the question is more than, did I just not do anything naughty today? In the day that he is returning, what is the best use of my time today, knowing that he is going to return? What is the, the best use of my time, and, and my uh, family's time, and the, my resources, and my energies, and my skills? If he was coming back, and since he is coming back, what's the best and wisest use of my time and my resources? And we should elevate our thinking beyond just let's not do anything naughty. Now, it would be better not to sin. I think we're going to. I don't want to seem hopeless, but our track record being what it is. What's the best use of my week? What does this week look like? If God was coming Friday, what what would this week actually look like? Would it look the way I have planned? And the question just sort of becomes, why not? Or, since I have life, since I have a family and work and responsibilities, how do I approach these things which are, given that he will return? So how can I be a parent or a spouse who acts as a parent and spouse knowing he is going to return? I may approach those roles a little bit differently. Finally, I would recommend we avoid foolishness that we would say, since God hasn't shown up yet, God is therefore late. Since there is no God, there is or there is a late God. I can do what I want here. Maybe I would just put it this way, and, and you know, I don't know if it will connect with any of you or not, but I think it's worth filing around. I might suggest there's something wrong with my life if it requires God to not exist for my life to be right. This is going to sound really cynical, okay? I'm going to pretend somebody else told it, because I'm not very cynical at all. Um, (laughs) Believe what you want about God. What kind of life do you want to live if it requires God not to exist? I might suggest, just on a very practical standpoint, that's not a great way to live life. And the question is, that's a pretty risky position to take Given that, the evidence is heavily in favor of the existence of God. So if I'm going to live life in such a way that requires God not to exist for my life to be acceptable, I think right now I've already got an issue. Why does my life have to be lived that way? Then secondly, am I really that convinced there is no God? Make sure, if that's how you want to live, make really certain that you're right on that count. Be diligent. Be found ready.